Acts chapter 4, verses 23 to 31. I'll give everybody a moment. I'm really looking for something over here. That's why I said that. I'm actually giving myself a moment. Past this fibbing. Praise God. Let's go to the word. Acts 4, 23-31. Luke writes, When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had to say to them. And when they heard it, they lifted up their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage? And the people's plot in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there was gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hands to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord. We thank you, Lord, that you are there. You are watching over the preaching of the word. You fill our hearts with the Holy Spirit. You give us boldness to stand against everything and all that comes against your son, Jesus Christ, God. And I pray along with the saints here today, my brothers and sisters, God, that we be a church that are always filled with the spirit and always bold in speaking the truth, Father God. I thank you, God, that you raise us all up, everyone in this room, for such a time as this. Let our hearts be united together as we see in the text today, Father God. Let us draw strength from what we're going to read today, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I will break down these verses as this, the reunion. I'll speak about that today. I'll speak about the report, too. I'm going to speak about how they heard the report, three. I will speak about how they prayed, and that's as far as I'll get today, only in their address as Sovereign Lord. We will speak about the qualifications next week of God, the inspiration of God, the prophecies of God, the historical setting and fulfillment of those prophecies. We will speak on verse 28, which is the secret counsel and wisdom of God. Uh, We will speak about the request in the prayer. Uh, and we'll also speak about the answer that God gives, the experience, the outward shaking, and the inward boldness. So I will probably only get to speak up into Sovereign Lord today. But as I have there, Sovereign Lord, the secret of boldness. We see a church on fire for the Lord. We see a church having all sorts of obstacles, threats against it. But we see a church moving forward and not stopping <coughs> at all. I ask everyone in this room, who would not want more boldness in their witness for the Lord? You can have it. It's yours. It's mine. It's ours. 
It's not for an individual in the church. It's not for an individual church. It is for everyone who's been born again, filled with the Spirit of God, who lives for the Lord. God has given us boldness to witness for Him. And not just boldness, but wisdom and how to do it. That's for all of us. But we're going to speak about the secret to that boldness tonight. It's there. I want to give an illustration. I actually struggled to find an appropriate illustration today. I was really searching my mind. I was praying. And uh, we usually like to start off with an illustration to go along with a sermon. And so, secrets of success, right? How many books are written on success? So, I peruse so many books and articles on famous people giving their secrets of success. And i got to be honest, a couple were good, a few. Uh, some were okay, but most of them were meaningless philosophies that really just amount to really... Not even good common sense, I've got to be honest with you. you know, but, but I did. I said, well, let me go to the church growth gurus, because there are people out there that give church growth seminars. And this is how you do it. If you can do A, B, C, and D, your church should. All right, it's methodology. It's, 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 they're, 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 sometimes they're almost gimmicky. Sometimes there's some prayer involved. Sometimes there's a trust in the word of God, but most of it just boils down to work harder, to keep it going. Well, I'm going to argue a different point today. I think what we're going to see today is really what makes a church successful, what makes a Christian successful. And that's when you know that God is the sovereign Lord of the universe. That is the cutting edge. That is the difference. That's what we're seeing here. In the midst of hostilities, we're seeing a church cry out to God. So this text here uh, is going to help us with the question tonight. How deep are we really trusting God? I ask all of us. As a church, me and John always ask, are we really trusting in the Lord? Am I trusting in the word preached? Or do I got to do a little tap dance too to keep everybody uh, interested? To keep everybody engrossed? Or is it just trusting in the ministry of the Holy Spirit sent from the Sovereign Lord to back up the truth that's preached in the name of Jesus Christ? Do we need to add more? Do I need commercials? Do I need gimmicks? Do I need a, a sort of how to fix the church book real quick? You know? Uh, people strive for this kind of stuff and we got to be very, very careful about it. You know, there are some churches that have done everything to make the church grow and it doesn't grow and what happens they start thinking that they lack faith or they, the church is not doing enough or the congregation's not giving enough and you gotta do something you gotta do something you gotta do something church let me propose this we don't do anything God does it all can we accept that which God gives us can we accept it and be faithful with it and to enjoy it, and to nurture it, and to love it the way Christ loves the church. I want to start in verse 23. And when they were released, they went to their friends. And if you're not familiar with the story, we know that Peter and John went up to the temple to pray in Acts chapter 3, and they healed a man, and crowds gathered, and they... And, and, and they witnessed and they preached the gospel and many got saved, but the, the leaders of Jerusalem didn't like this, so they got them and they arrested them and they threatened them and they beat them and said, never teach again 
or proclaim the name of Jesus. That was it. And then they let them go after they flogged them a little bit. And now they're coming back to their friends. And we're here in verse 23. And when they were released from prison, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priest and the elders had to say to them. And I might add that I'm going to do a little bit of application as I go along uh, in these verses today. As I expound on it to the best of my ability, I will also touch upon application. We see that right after the hostile atmosphere of standing before the court of the Sahendrin, where all the rulers of Israel are right there, the high priests are there, the first thing that they do when they leave this hostile spiritual atmosphere was to go to their friends. The first thing they did. They left the religious court system and the apostles sought refuge amongst their friends. What a warm and powerful image is represented here. I don't want to miss this. Because really the only antidote in this hostile world is the sanctuary of other like-minded believers. Please don't miss that. The only antidote for a hostile week in this world is to be with the believer at the end of the week, if not even more, whenever we could in our fellowship. It's the only antidote. Where we find encouragement and understanding, and we can pray over the things of life. And that's what's taking place here. And have a a sense of a a true belonging, which really takes place. Uh, It it was a place of, uh, how could you say... uh, of contrasting views of life. Where you live in the world and they were in the world and they were under the, the inquisition of the religious ruling system and then they leave the religious ruling system that was in the temple and they go to someone's house and that's where like-minded believers were. That's where their solace was. That was their comfort was. That was where their encouragement was. That's where their strength was. That's where they belonged. That's where they belonged. Certain intangibles were taking place in that room when they went back to their friends. How about hope, love, and joy? I remember when I first got saved. When I first got saved, all I couldn't wait to do was go to church on Sunday. And I mean it. And I, and I texted Kim and I said, could you play that song, We're Together Again? We used to play that every Sunday. And that was a call to worship. And I was a young believer, and I didn't understand what was taking place in my heart, but I just wanted to be around believers. Then I realized, because a week in the world of unbelievers, I couldn't wait to get around believers. I couldn't wait to play that little song with a melody in my heart, and to sing and what was taking place It was all new. It was all very real. It was all the ministry of the Holy Spirit. I needed to be around my friends. It was the Holy Spirit knitting hearts together. These are kingdom dynamics. And it felt so good. And guess what? 25 years later, it still feels so good. I still need it. 40 years later, do I hear 50? John Verdi? Brother Verdi? Pastor Verdi? I, like the apostles, was experienced a different type of belonging. What I needed, I can't get in the world anymore. 
I have to go to my friends. I got to go to other like-minded believers. I can't fight Satan all week. I can't fight my flesh all week. I can't fight the seduction and temptations of this world all week and make it on my own. I have to be around believers. And of course I have fellowship with my wife. Of course I have fellowship with other Christians during the week. Of course I do. But there's something about the corporate worship that, and we pray this every week, that recalibrates our faith. Am I right? I mean, who was, who made it, who had a wonderful week in holiness and sanctification this week? Who wasn't persecuted by a family member? Who wasn't let down at all this week? Who walked on water with Jesus this week? Nobody. And you're not going to. That's why we have a Sabbath rest. And they came to the new family. A deeper and richer expression of what it means to be alive. And so after this hostile environment, which for us is analogous of just living in this world and living even around among unbelieving family members who we love, but they, they just don't like the high moral view we live under. They don't like the high view of God we have, the high standard we put ourselves under. People don't understand us. Paul says all those who press into godliness will be what? Persecuted. Just for pressing into holiness. Just to be Christ-like, you'll be persecuted. If you're being sanctified, if you're loving the Lord, your family's not going to understand. Your friends aren't going to understand. Unbelievers won't. They'll say it's a good thing, it's a nice thing. But on the day, at the end of the day, they're talking about you. They don't like it. They don't understand it. And they don't want it. We need to be with our friends. I need to be with people that know what I'm going through. I need to tell somebody. I was sharing something with a good friend of mine once about just going through some life stuff. And he didn't understand it. Because I was coming from a Christian perspective. And I realized then, what am I doing? I'm opening up my heart in a deep way to someone who has no understanding of my values. I need to be with my friends. And when they came to their friends, they announced to them. It means to explain, to inform, to interpret. It's not just to Say something. It's not to relate an event. Oh, by the way, we were arrested for preaching in the name of Jesus. No, it was to inform them and interpret what was taking place in the attack against Christianity. It's not just to relate an event, but to interpret its spiritual meaning within an historical setting for the strengthening of the recipients of the report. They reported to them. They explained to them exactly what was taking place. They explained exactly that the hostilities towards the crucified Christ is now against his church. They explained it in detail through the Bible. It was their job to explain the hostile posture of the ruling class against them. It was their job to come back and give a sound articulate and informed report. That's what it means. This is not about what did you do last night? Well, you know, some guy slapped me around for preaching Jesus. This is to say, no, there is something going on in the world. And it is our job to let you know. They had to explain the threat 
They told us it's all taken place because we preached and taught in the name of Jesus. They reported and explained the spiritual implications of what they were told never to preach in that name again. Do you know in America they're trying to steal the name of Jesus right out from underneath our feet? We live in a culture that can't even hear the name of Jesus. We live in a culture that wants nothing to do with God. This culture is more secular and material than ever before generation that has gone before. And it is getting worse and it's getting hostile. And it is our job as ministers to report that which is taking place in the world. It's my job to be up to date and informed on the attack of Christianity when they don't want us to talk in Jesus' name. They don't want us to proselytize. They don't want us to live holy lives. They don't want us to share our our hard moral standards with them. They don't want any of it. And it's our job to come back to our friends and give a report of what is taking place. Amen? Amen. It was their job. It's my job. It's John's job. Anyone who's called into the pulpit to pass to God's sheep is called to come to their friends and give a report of what's taking place in this world against Christ. We need to relate the threats to their faith. And that's what they were doing. They were coming back and giving, relating the threats to the Christian faith. To be up to date on the attacks of Christianity. But understand something. And to interpret it, not from an emotional point of view. But to interpret it from a biblical stand. A biblical stand. What does the Bible say about this? Oh, David said through the Holy Spirit, that the nations rage in vain against you. That's what's taking place. Okay, the Bible already told me. And not just that, but the Bible already told me that which you planned and predestined to take place. That's a report. That's how you interpret the times. So what the scriptures teach us. It's interesting. Common threat. Strengthens believers' faith and fellowship. Did you know that? Common threat does that. If we suffer threat alone, we remain alone. But when we come together and say, no, something, I went through that. I was attacked by, I met my mother. Sharing my faith with my mother, me and my wife. And I've shared this before. She says, why are you leaving the family religion? My mother's never been to church in her life. <laughs> and she's trying to say, and she was serious. Because now here me and Terry are talking about Jesus. We got Bibles, we got Christian music. It's like, you know, Jesus t-shirts, everything, you know. Like, what happened to you? You know, and like they thought we were nuts. And, and I can understand that. But if I share that with a non-believer, I get an empty stare. But when I share that with another believer, I get an amen. I've been there. I understand. Let's pray. What's the Bible say about it? And that's what we need. And he goes on to say in verse 24. And when they heard it, they lifted up their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. 
The apostle's job was to report an articulate interpretation of what was taking place in the spiritual atmosphere in Jerusalem that Jesus was still under scrutiny. He was still under attack. Those who crucified him are now telling his followers, don't speak in that name anymore. And when they heard it, doesn't mean they heard words. They heard everything they reported and the implications it meant for them personally and the implications it meant for the church and the implication it meant for the mission and the implications it meant against the command that you shall preach this gospel to every living creature, baptize them and making disciples and teach them to obey Obey you, obey everything I've commanded you. They understood the world was against their Jesus and the world was against their doctrine. The world was against the name of Jesus Christ. They heard it. They understood it. Nobody was saying, what do you mean? I don't understand. Could you, could you say that again? Could you give it to me in different words? They all knew. They all heard. The implications were clear. Jesus is under attack. They paid attention. They knew immediately the implications. They heard it clearly the way the apostles reported and expressed it. It was not over their heads. It was clear to them. They understood it was a threat. They understood that this was not just the apostles' war, but it was all believers' war. And after they heard it, in a symphony, they lifted up their voices to God. Though most likely there was one person praying or one person at a time praying, It goes to show the spontaneous unity they had. It represented the sentiments of the whole group. They were all cut to the heart when they heard that report. When they heard that articulated report, it hurt them. It hurt the Jesus whom they loved, the Jesus whom died for them, the Jesus who was their Messiah, the Jesus who was the nation's Messiah. It hurt them, it wounded them. And they lifted up their voices, not and say, oh, should we pray? Maybe we should pray. No, they, they had to pray. The pressure of what they heard, the attack, they, they had to pray. They had to go to God. And it speaks of their single-mindedness. They were kingdom-minded. They were concerned about the name of Jesus. They were concerned about their nation. They were concerned about salvation. They were concerned about the church. They heard it. And they lifted up their voices all in one accord. No one had to be talked into it. They knew what was taking place. What unity. What single-mindedness. What a prayer meeting. And they prayed. They lifted up their voice. It's really their praying. It's defined here as lifting up their voices. It's this deep, deep, unified cry from the corporate heart. It's not one person believing it. 
and praying and the other guy thinking about spaghetti. They're all thinking at one time of really what's taking place. If you can only picture what was taking place in that room. When they all lifted up their voice together. In unison. In harmony. Lifting up their heart to the Lord. This is spontaneous prayer to God that goes to the to highlight the church's dependence. And that's something we all have to realize. This church was fully dependent on God in all matters. That's why they can lift up their voice spontaneous against that threat. No planning, no complaining, no murmuring, no blaming somebody. Will they threaten us? Let's get together and, and worry. Let's get together and point the finger. Let's get together and find a scapegoat. Let's blame somebody for what's happening in our nation. People like to do that. you know. Instead of just going to prayer. Let's find someone to blame. Human nature. It's very common when people hear bad news. Bad news usually doesn't get people to do what? Right away. We have to go through this little pity party. Yes. Oh! Oh, God! You know, it just, why, why me, Lord? You know, why us? Why? And then after a while, we come to our senses and go, and God's not hearing that prayer anyway, so let me, let me get right with God. And then we pray, and we lift up our voice. For them, it was a very mature way of hearing bad news. Let me say it again. It's a very mature Christian way of hearing bad news. And they cry out, Sovereign Lord. Three times in the New Testament, she was, that's it. Just three times. Later on, they used a regular word for Lord. Here, it means supreme ruler of the universe. <coughs> this is the power behind this church. It's the secret to all their boldness. When they prayed, their hearts were surrendered to the creator of the universe. Don't miss it. This is no small picture of God. They qualify it of heaven and earth. There's nothing in between. It's alpha and omega. There's nothing else. You don't qualify. That's the only qualification God needs as sovereign ruler. He's the creator. He's the first cause. Everything that came into existence, he brought forth out of sheer Nothing. These two words, which in the Greek is really just one. Despotas. It means, like I said, supreme ruler. We get our English word despot from. You know what that word means? It means ultimate ruler. 
but it has a cruel sense. It's someone who acts cruel, like a Saddam Hussein or a Hitler type. They have ultimate power, and they use it cruelly. That's where we get the word. But of course it doesn't mean that here. It speaks of God's all power, all benevolence, all wisdom. He's God at all times, over all things in history, period. So when they lift up their voice, they hear, they heard the report and spontaneously cried out. They went to God in prayer, but they didn't go and squeak and they went right to the throne of the creator himself and they cried out and they lifted up their voices from the depth of their heart. They had nowhere else to go. They had nowhere else to plead their case and they went right to the sovereign creator of the universe and they cried out with one voice, Sovereign Lord. We have nowhere to go. It's like, it's like the parable of the persistent widow. She had nowhere to go and she hounded the judge who did not fear God or did not fear man until she got what she needed. And that's how we have to be at times in our life as a church and as individuals. There's nowhere to go. You got to go to God with this in your heart. You're the sovereign God of the universe. I have nowhere else to go. You can do all things. With you, all things are possible. That's what they're saying. Don't miss it. It's a small group of people. This was a young, this was the church's ethos. It's a believing principle for a person or a group of people or an organization. It what drives the organization. It what drives a person. And this is the one underlying believing principle that drove this young church. God is sovereign over all things. So much so they can say that David prophesied about it and that you allowed it to come, you planned it, and even predetermined it to take place. You are sovereign. Who are their threats against you, God? Who are you? Who are they to try to stop you, to stop us from speaking in the name of Jesus? You're the sovereign master of the universe. How dare them? God, this is your war. They're speaking against you. God's dominion is total. He wills as he chooses and he carry out that which he wills. And no one can stay his hand or stop his plans. That's it. That's it. They're not, this is not guessology. This is not, was Moses right? Were the prophets right? Is David out of his mind? Is the Christ really risen? No, this is a, this is a group of people that went straight to God under the qualification Nothing is outside your jurisdiction. Nothing. Even evil, please. Even the face of evil at the worst times is in the control of the hand of God. They thought 
the, the greatest act of evil ever to take place was the crucifixion of God the Son. And it was all according to the plea, predetermined plan of God. That's it. There's no time out. Well, how does that work with free will? Well, you know, you're violating man's free will, God. You know, we got a philosophy down here that doesn't allow you to violate our sinful free will. No, there's no, there's no philosophy 101 going on over here. The Bible never shows us that. They were enthralled and wrapped up into the omniscient, omnipotent, power of Almighty God. No one competes with that. Who are you, O oh man, to bring a charge against God? Yeah. Who are you to counsel yeah. God? Who is the clay to say to the potter, how come you made me this way? They knew it. They knew that God was so in control of human history and human destiny. Biblical faith like this, as I just said, is never seen trying to figure out the wise or questioning God or why not another way God it doesn't get caught up in that it goes past human reason it goes past human logic and it goes right into the heart of who almighty God is in his attributes as the creator of the universe and says God you have the answer to all things I have nowhere else to find comfort they never questioned it just childlike faith at its best. And in the worst of times, they had peace, they had joy, they had hope. In the midst of every storm, as you read the book of Acts, please understand something. Go home and just read it with this thought. Watch how in control of God is in all situations. Peter is arrested in chapter 6. Guess what? He's sleeping. He knows what's at stake. The angel has to wake him up. Come on, Peter. He wakes up and he thinks he thinks it's a dream. Paul and Silas are in jail. They're singing and praising God. All the prisoners are listening to him. Stephen in Acts chapter 6, he's being stoned to death. And when they looked at him, he had the face of an angel. Paul. In Acts 26, he's in the nor'easter. For three days, they don't see the sun. And the wind is blowing. It's about to crash. But an angel comes to Paul and says, Paul, no one's going to perish. And he stands up under the authority of God and says, hold on. No one's going to perish. No one's going to perish. Or David running against Goliath with nothing but a slingshot in the name of the Lord of hosts. Or Daniel eating vegetables and looking more fit than the other young men who ate at the king's table. Why is that? There's no panic in the camp. And why is there no panic in the camp? Because they know God is sovereign. They know he's sovereign and rules over heaven and earth. And nothing can stop his plan. He has a plan. He's going to fulfill it. You're part of it. I'm part of it. The church is part of it. The crucifixion's part of it. The resurrection's part of it. The second coming's part of it. The man of lawlessness is all part of it. He's all part of God's plan. They know it and God wants us to know it. That's it. When we know that God is in full control of the ministry, 
When we know that God's in full control of the preaching. When God is in full control of our families. When we know that God's in full control of the future. When we know that God's in full control of politics. When we know that God's in full control of human history. You fill in the blanks. When you know God's in full control, then understand something. You and I can be in control of our emotional state when I know that God's in full control. When we know that God's in full control, you and I will be in better control of our emotional state which drives us crazy we'll be in more control of our thoughts that can drive us mad when we know God's sovereign our fears which cause us so many times to make these bad knee jerk reactions and decisions at the most important times of life we make them out of fear and frustration because we don't know God is sovereign when you know God is sovereign. Panic ceases. Knee-jerk reactions to life cease. How many ministries have gotten off track and wounded many Christians because they lack this kind of faith and try to make something happen? Because times are changing. Get with the times. No, get with God, who's still on the throne. He's still sovereign Lord. He'll never leave us nor forsake us. If he wants to give me famine, let him give me famine. If he wants to give me plenty, let him give me plenty. And when these ministries lack this kind of faith and they try to make things happen in their own power, when we don't have this doctrine and we don't have this truth truth up and running in our life, we will seek solace in all the wrong places. Doubt will rule the day. Don't miss it. Abraham did not listen. God told him, you will have a child. Didn't tell him when. Sarah didn't like that. She came up with what? Because she didn't know God was. They birthed in Ishmael. The rest is history. Understand something. They did not trust the promise of God. And this is why. The power behind every promise of God is the sovereignty of God. Otherwise, God could not make a promise of any future event if he were not in control of human history. God doesn't make a prophecy or a promise because he sees it happening. He makes the promise and then he makes it happen. That's God. God is not playing chess with human beings. Oh, they did this, I gotta do that. They did this, I gotta do that. Move the rook. Do this, do that. Checkmate. Oh my goodness. No, 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 no. It's all working out the way He wants it. 
That's why Christ can say with all authority, though the elders are going to crucify me and kill me, on the third day I will rise. God is sovereign. This doctrine of the sovereignty of God is at the heart of Paul's testimony, of which we all know in Philippians chapter 4. I'm going to read it out of the New Living Translation. Not that I was ever in need, Paul says. He goes on to say, for I have learned how to be content with whatever I have. I know how to live on almost nothing or with everything. I have learned the secret of living in every situation, whether it is full of stomach or an empty stomach, with plenty or with little, for I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. Please understand something. That's spoken as a man that fully knows God is in control of his life, of his destiny, of his future, of his eternity, that he can stand in jail, not sure if he's ever going to come out again and say, I know the secret of contentment. This is the secret to success. Not try harder, but there's nothing wrong with trying. There's nothing wrong with working hard. But we have to do whatever we do under the guise, under the covering, under the the strength, and under the majesty of God who is in control of all things. Let's pray. Father, we thank you always. And as we sang that last hymn, God, Give us grace to strengthen our faith, God. Strengthen our faith. We believe, God. We're here because we believe, but help our unbelief, Lord, wherever it might be in our mind, wherever it might be in our heart, over, over jobs and over future and over health and over family and over children and over parents and over every fear and anxiety that rages war against our soul, God. Increase our faith as we see what's taking place in this nation today Father God as we see the continued threat of the nations raging in vain when we see a nation that was brought forth by Puritan hope Puritan doctrine settled on gospel principles God And we're so far away from that Norman Rockwell village we once knew and loved and it's getting further and further and further away. God, I pray you raise up a standard and that standard be boldness in the hearts of your people, God. Boldness to speak what we believe. Boldness to speak what we have seen. Boldness to speak of what we have heard. Boldness to speak what we know to be true, God. You are, O sovereign God, the maker of heaven and earth. In your name we pray.